Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health, our first for 2020. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation that Courtney and I had with Professor Mark Stevenson from the University of Melbourne late last year when he was visiting Perth. Professor Stevenson is a professor of urban transport and public health and an epidemiologist. Our conversation covers a range of topics, but primarily we are discussing transport methods and transport safety and the the way that our cities are designed and the way they function. I think you'll agree it's a really interesting chat. Uh, We were very fortunate to get some of uh, Professor Stevenson's time whilst he was here, and we hope you enjoy it. For another episode of The Meaning of Health, I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're very lucky here to be with Mark, uh, Professor Mark Stevenson this week. Great, nice to be here. Yeah, welcome. Um, so just for the listeners, Mark, do you want to just give a brief rundown of who you are, where, where you're at, and what you're sure. doing at the moment? Sure. Um, so I'm Professor of Urban Transport and Public Health uh, at the University of Melbourne. And uh, my position sits across, uh, I, I trained as an epidemiologist here in, at UWA. Um, but I don't sit in a school of population global health, I sit in a school of design um, and, and, and there's a reason behind that but uh, so my appointment at Melbourne University is, is across the school of design, the school of engineering and the school of population and global health uh, and the reason for that is to really pick up on uh, what the research platform that I'm really operating out of now which is around understanding our urban form, the influence that transport has in that urban form on our health and future health and and to do that we really need to challenge I think our current paradigms around some public health uh, and and certainly it needs to be uh, transdisciplinary so uh, sitting in a school of design has really opened up my perspective uh, as a sort of as a public health epidemiologist in relation to how we need to think much more broadly about how our cities operate uh, in the 21st century, uh, particularly in relation to our health. So uh, it's been terrific. Mm. I think it really ties in with one of the themes that we covered in an earlier podcast, which is prevention as a, as a public health concept. Mm. A lot of your work seems to be geared at preventing deaths and injuries and accidents and whatnot, doesn't it? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, when I completed my PhD, it, it was in injury epidemiology, and at, at the time, there were, um, we're talking about 25, 30 years ago now, at the time there, were very, there was a lot of epidemiologic research but very limited research in the field of injury and uh, there was just an understanding or perception I should say that an injury was sort of a chance occurrence that you could do very little to prevent. Um, and so there was a network of, of public health epidemiologists around the world who began to start investigating injuries and uh, at the time uh, what attracted me here to UWA was there was a road you know um, traffic injury research group here um, and so I, I pursued you know good epidemiologic research around young kids being hit by cars uh, and that led to a, you know, a really interesting career. I worked at Harvard and at the Centers for Disease Control um, in Atlanta looking at risk factors associated with transport um, and our health, in particular with road trauma. Um, and over the years we you know, developed some fantastic pieces of research uh, 
where we were the first to identify the risks between handheld, hands-free mobile phone use and car crash. Uh, we did a lot of work around um, changing the, the rules here in, in Western Australia and then ultimately the rest of Australia around toddler drownings and, uh, and uh, the three-sided versus four-sided pool fencing. Um, so we've got a lot, we, there were a lot of gains from sort of epidemiological approach. Um, but as time move on, has moved on, what I see is the utility of some of those approaches, the sort of risk factor, identification, intervention, delivery, uh, it was, it is limited. And I think in the 21st century, where we're dealing with big data and complexity and, and trying to understand that, um, it warrants a very, not necessarily very different, but a different approach. And, and that's really where the work I'm currently doing has sort of led me to to sit in a School of Architecture building and planning and, and focus on embracing a range of tools to better understand the population health. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so it looks it seems like you've covered like a huge area of public health, but uh, so originally you looked at, at road safety. How did you decide to go into there? Was your background before your PhD always in public health or was it something else? No, so I had a clinical background, worked in sports medicine. Okay. So, um, so prevention was an area I was, I was interested in. Um, and I probably when I looked to, I, I clearly wanted to move out of clinical work and into research. And when I did do that, I didn't typically think of injury. I, I really wanted to do public health, traditional public health research, uh, as in, you know, infectious disease or cardiovascular. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and at the time, uh, there was a, you know, a fantastic uh, academic within the, the Department of Public Health, as it was referred to in, at UWA, uh, uh, Professor Conrad Jemrozek, who had sort of highlighted, and, and he was a cardiovascular epidemiologist, but he, you know, he was looking at my background and also my interests and sort of thought, this is an area that really requires quite urgent work and, and no one's seemed to be doing a great deal in it. So that was what's, you know, and, and in fact, in hindsight, it was a perfect blend of what I had done in the past with, you know, where I, well, where I headed to. Um, and I think it's a, probably a, it reflects really my career as an epidemiologist. It's constantly been morphing into something new. Uh, and I think that's what's exciting about population health, that things change uh, and we've got to embrace it and I think we've also got to, we talk a lot about evidence-based medicine and, and that approach and what that really conjures up for me is that we must challenge the evidence all the time as well and that means the paradigms that we typically operate under need to be challenged and and uh, and so it's not it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to step out of uh, say a very traditional population health field and work and sit in a school of architecture around uh, you know, research projects that were predominantly what they referred to as case studies, which, you know, to me seemed like a very rudimentary approach. <laughs> yeah. um, and that has, uh, the, but it's a, a very different perspective and a very different insight. Uh, and it's given me, you know, quite a unique perspective on how we need to really address prevention. Um, and, and, and then it's led me more into, uh, I guess, the nice thing about our population health focus is that very quantitative um, background. And so with the advent of big data and the opportunities that brings with it, it allows you to become, you know, a, you know, an academic or a researcher who can consider all sorts of uh, opportunities that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise have even considered. And, and that's what's exciting. Mm.
And your, your area is quite, without people realising it, it's quite dynamic in that the exposures that people are exposed to tend to be changing all the time with technology and whether it be handheld devices or flashing billboards or you know whatever it is, it's a lot of things that seem to contribute to traffic accidents and you know road safety and all that sort of stuff. Well, in the transport field, yeah, I, I look. I think the transport field reflects probably other fields, but is probably much more proactive and much more rapid. And excuse the pun, but than, than <laughs> uh, say other other disciplinary areas, uh, technology has really uh, sort of enhanced where we're going with transport um, and so with that there are just an array of opportunities now I guess what I'm wanting us to take from this podcast as well is that it's important to take some of those those technological advances on fa- at face value um, and uh, but every advance also there are potential negative externalities and if we think back to even the 20th century in our transport system it, it evolved very rapidly you know in 1901 with you know the Ford Model T uh, and sort of commercial production of the vehicle and from that you know a lot evolved and, and we have the world and cities that we you know know particularly in Australia but um, there, as a consequence of that, the negative externalities were, weren't really picked up on until around the 70s, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, where they started to focus on massive trauma levels. You know, we need to redesign the vehicle. But the other element to this was all this whole new system or, or array of systems that were established. So we have uh, insurance systems, we have a third-party no-fault scheme in Australia and some of the states here in WA, but also in, in uh, Victoria where I am, um, that were really just established to deal with the negative externalities of our transport system. And so those are the sort of things that we need to, in, in public health and, and as researchers, be very mindful of as we move rapidly into the 21st century and a whole new transport system, that there are an array of things that are going to arise that are potentially good, but there's going to be a whole bunch of things that aren't. Uh, and we don't typically talk about those at the moment, and we're not even simulating what they potentially could be. And I have some concerns in terms of the 21st century transport system, and that uh, that are, I think, quite imminent public health concerns. Uh, the most obvious one is sedentary lifestyle will become much more pervasive as a consequence of our transport system, uh, and then all the consequences associated with that. Um, there will be also a whole array of social isolation you know, accompanied with it. If we continue the way we are operating in Australia and we don't go with clean fuels, then we'll also continue to have you know, the levels of emission that we currently have, 20% of all, uh, all of our CO2 emissions and our particulate matter are all a consequence of a, of a transport system. So you know, there's a whole array of elements that we have to focus on. At the moment, we hear in the new world around, around transport is the, the safety gains that we'll get. And there's certainly no doubt there will be considerable safety gains. But that's the automotive industry talking about safety gains that can be achieved. It's not talking about well, what are the negative elements of all of this. Are you talking about autonomous vehicles? And that's so that's autonomous vehicles, yeah. Right. Okay. And so, and I think you've, you've touched on sort of a town planning type issue about encouraging people to walk and, and share transport and that sort of thing. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about yeah. isolation and yeah, behaviour? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we as a so I had a, a research group, a, a, it's a research lab in, in in the University of Melbourne called Transport Health and Urban Design, um, and uh, within that group we have uh, clinical psychologists, we have uh, mathematicians, urban planners, engineers, and, and the like. So it's very much a transdisciplinary group, uh, and and our focus is around big data and, and using big data on a global platform. So uh, we in 2016 we published a a Lancet series called Urban Design, Transport and Health uh, and in that we modelled um, if we were able to change our cities and make them much more compact and, and that's a, a challenging concept in Australia um, particularly in cities like Perth mm -hmm. uh, where you know the, the quarter acre block I know that's sort of going quickly but there's still you know, there's still a desire to have a reasonable size block here um, we, we challenged that premise and that to look at what health gains might occur if we actually densified our cities uh, and we quantified that for the first time, just not only what the burden of disease was attributed to the transport system in a city like Perth or Melbourne, um, but we also then measured just you know what health gains could you achieve if you started to change your urban form. Uh, and they were quite considerable. And the main gains were in relation to cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease. Um, uh, and interestingly, what motivates me in a lot of my research was about road trauma. Well, in fact, the compact city actually increased levels of road trauma. So it's not all, you know, a great news story. Right. Um, the reason why road trauma would increase in a compact city is that we're moving people out of uh, cars and into public onto public transport and at cycling and walking. Now, Per vehicle kilometre travel, public transport is very safe, but uh, active transport in Australia is not safe. And it's certainly not safe in cities like Perth. And, um, and so your VKT, your vehicle kilometre travelled in a city like Perth, if you went to densifying it and increased people cycling, it, it goes up. And so you will increase levels of trauma. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I don't know whether I'm making this connection or not, but how does how are there gains with cardiovascular disease when you when you compact a city? Like I can't make that connection. So, so what, what you what you tend a compact city is a city of shorter distances. So yep. basically, what it does allow you to do is move people out of private motor vehicles and onto public transport. Right. So they'd transport. be walking more. So then there's, more. there's much more physical activity. Right. Um, there's reduced sedentary sitting in cars. Even though you do expend energy sitting in a car, not very much. Um, but so you've got those greater levels of experience. Managers. And so basically what we were showing, we modelled Melbourne, um, that something like 14% of all car trips in Melbourne were under five kilometres. And so you could feasibly sort of show that those sort of trips could be converted into uh, an active transport trip. Uh, and so it's those sorts of gains that you got. Uh, and then reduced public-private transport also led to uh, you know, reduced emissions and that also contributes to cardiovascular disease um, as well as respiratory disease. So, um, so there's that sort of measure, yeah. Mm. And where do we look for for guidance? Do you, do you look to kind of Scandinavia and, and Europe for a lot of the where this has been done better uh, in the past or...? Um, look, yes, and, and typically in that uh, Lancet series we, we modelled uh, six cities. We looked at Melbourne, London, uh, Delhi, Sao Paulo, Copenhagen and Boston um, and we use Copenhagen because it, it's a renowned city in relation to active transport. Uh, I think about a third of its, all of its vehicles, vehicle kilometres travelled are undertaken in an active mode of cycling. Um, and, and so we showed that and it was good contrast and that's the nice thing about having also big data, it allows you to be able to compare any city in the world with each other uh, and we've been doing that in our lab. Uh, but 
the thing I, you know, we do reflect a lot on Scandinavian countries, but other than Helsinki, the rest of these cities are very, very old cities that evolved pre-motor pre vehicle. So they, by having the ability, having the density, it, it basically by default, have their urban form was conducive much more so to public transit and short commutes and active transport. So in some ways it is good to look at those cities, but it's, we, we live in a different world. We're the new world where our cities evolved post, you know, motorisation. Um, and our cities have been, have been specifically designed for the car. So we have a, a much more challenging, you know, um, path to to ensure we have sustainability, uh, and they're the sort of things that we're focused on by looking at every city globally, so that we can begin to explore what might be the right mix and how do we how do we achieve it. Um, but having said that, there are cities like Helsinki, for example, where they weren't, uh, you know, uh, very very old, but they actually evolved uh, at, during the motorised period in the 20th century, uh, and have put in place very tight and you know uh, legislation around what is. Of, you know, what you can use and what access is available and, and emphasise public transit. And so they've, you know, and, and sustainability. And so they've been able to rapidly move to that, into that direction. So it highlights that there's, policy is a very important lever uh, and public policy, but also transport policy. And it's not public health policy. It's all of these working together. Um, and it's not working together in terms of we all sit in the same room and talk. It's actually... Uh, we, what I'm advocating is that we need some governance structures in the 21st century where we actually simulate it all and we actually look at what this housing policy, what effects this housing policy going to have on, on transport, what does it have on our health system here, you know, what's it going to do. Um, and that's the sort of decision platforms we lack and we really need. I guess it's changing people's ideas about which disciplines should be involved in those decisions, like which which areas of research. And, yeah, yeah, it does. I think you know, I often think it, there's a lot of arrogance when it comes with professions. Um, and you know, I've worked a lot for with the World Health Organization and UNICEF and others, and um, and it plays out in every part of the world. Doesn't matter whether it's low income, middle income, or high income. I think it's just human perspective, and, and uh, you know, a political scientist would be able to tell us all about it. You know, um, but as what a sociologist, and I think these are the things that we really need to understand. But I think what we see in those, you know, I worked a lot in Vietnam, and and there's a real hierarchy in the government system of health being very high. Uh, often health isn't probably when it comes to transport, they probably shouldn't be dealing with it. Uh, we 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 do, you know, the sequelae of you know of the negative externalities of the transport system, health deals with, but you know, th there are real gains to be achieved by ensuring that the transport policies deliver. Uh, health outcome, uh, and and so the, they we need to we need to really question the governance around how our cities operate for health, um, and that's not really captured in a lot of things. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you have mentioned a couple of times for your love of big big data, so I did quickly want to mention that. Um, what kind of data are you actually using? Because I know here in Perth, um, in Western Australia, we've got a very good like hospital system and um, we get all the data from that. So what kind of data are you using for these projects? Uh, so big data is big, big, big data. Yeah. So um, <laughs> basically, we, uh, there's a variety of data. If I think, give you two illustrations. The first is one that we've just submitted, uh, led by um, Dr. Jason Thompson in our 
uh, lab, he's focused on looking at every city in the world. Um, and That's it, a lot of data. It's a lot of data. So we just use, access Google Street View images, or yep. Google Maps, I should say. Um, and we were able to then standardise, it's all standardised, all collected in the same way for every city, other than those which have been blocked, so we, we weren't looking at South Korea <laughs> or any of those. But, yeah. um, and we were able to then strip each map uh, of street names and uh, and names, uh, so they were just we just looked at green space, blue space, um, road networks, and public transit um, networks, mostly rail networks. So when you do that, you just have maps that have got those features from Google Map. Uh, and then what we were doing is like randomly sampling a thousand four by four hundred meter maps for every city in the in 1700 cities so we have database of about you know 1.7 million images um, and then we did a whole array of machine learning approaches on this new techniques that we developed it allows you to begin to say uh, you know and using you know, graph analysis and all sorts of other unique approaches we're able to look at how do cities come together you know which cities cluster for example and you begin to explore how cities are clustering based on their transport networks or their green space or mm -hmm. um, and it starts giving you insights that we've never had before because of the availability of the data um, so that's one example the other we're doing quite a bit on is uh, in transport data is what we call telematics data and telematics data is um, it picks up on the vehicle's sensors uh, and uh, we've created created some apps where you can actually process that's the, the, so hard braking, hard acceleration, speeding beyond post speed limits, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and that data is downloaded at one second intervals. So you can imagine every trip you take and you're getting data at one second intervals, you've got a lot of data. Uh, and then again, if you're using uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, you begin to see patterns. And basically what we're creating is a driver DNA. Um, so you can actually get you know exactly how people drive and who, who's driving the vehicle, but even based on their DNA. And that can be used then for a whole array of, whole array of things. So, so many opportunities yeah, there. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's exciting. Yeah. So there are, there are certain things that can predict certain outcomes based on those big patterns that you see forming and outcomes that that particular driver type has, you know, whether it be a crash or a... You know, um, yeah, you, you, you can. I mean, if you've got outcome data, so if you've got insurance data and claim data, you can begin to see, you know, what, what were the driving patterns pre the event. Um, but in many instances, you don't have that outcome. You just have the, the driving data. Um, but, you know, there are opportunities coming up where you know, we can potentially link those two. So. And do, do you uh, foresee that the insurance industry would be interested in having people like yourself do that type of work? Uh, well, they already are. They're yeah, okay. they are. They're just... You know, there's a number out there already that, that do something like this. It's just untapped. Really. Okay. And do, do you need to get people's consent to have oh, their driving? Mm. Legal question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, look, I, I guess it's look. It's like any of the. I mean, it's you know the whole tech industry, particularly around transport and and uh, ride sharing. Um, there's a whole array of this of. Uh, criteria that's set within the system that you know basically by you uh, signing on and allowing it by default some of it's not by default I mean I, I'm aware of one insurance company where you know there is a criteria there's a, a privacy page and it actually explicitly outlines what it entails and who has access to the data and who doesn't and all the rest 
I, you know, it's, it's whether the consumer actually reads all that. Mm. Um, but it's, it's yeah, that, that's look, it's an interesting area yeah. um, moving forward, and it's, it's an interesting area in relation to who has the data. And an interesting element is in the past, in the twentieth century, government has the data. In the twenty first century. Government doesn't have that. Mm, that's true. Yeah, it sounds similar to some of the health apps you can download on your phone, and um, it's come out recently that they've been collecting data on on health, and they've published a whole bunch of stuff based on the apps. And people have gone, "Hey, wait a minute! I didn't realise." And it's just because they didn't read exactly what was in the the privacy things. Um, but yeah, there's so so many opportunities mm. with that data. Mm. Oh. On a slightly related topic, something that came up earlier was the no fault. Uh, insurance schemes, third-party insurance schemes. Now, I, I do have a law degree, and so I, I, that was something that came up in tort law when I was at university, was what, what impact that has on how people's behaviour is regulated by the legal system, you know, whether you sue someone privately or whether your your um, injuries are covered by, you know, the, the scheme. What What's your view on that based on what you've seen from uh, accidents? Well, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we have two, you know, they're very different systems and, and I, I think, um, you know, the US has, has uh, doesn't have a no-fault scheme and, and so it becomes a very litigious environment and I think that just supports a whole industry. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I think a no-fault system, I think, is an important, very, very important system. Uh, and particularly when you know the transport system has evolved to be like that, and it, and it's not a fail-safe system. So in fact, you know we you know we need to ensure that we are putting the public on a system that results in failure, and on that basis we should be covering you know whatever injuries that occur as a consequence of using that system. So uh, you know I'm certainly in very very much in favour of it. Um, but having said that, things are changing a lot. You know, uh, you know. I just talked about you know driver DNA. I mean, there's a whole array of uh, pieces of work, and some that we've just finished, you know, researching, uh, that show that providing uh, a driver uh, some of their feedback on how they drive can actually change some of their behaviours. Um, and albeit, you know, we've only looked at it for a six-month period, so you know, I don't know about sustainability in the future. So, what that highlights is that potentially there could be some changes to a third-party insurance scheme, um, and I think probably could be very important ones where you might actually be likely to get some quite considerable uh, safety gains as a consequence of it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I guess this is it's a, a guess that goes back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast sort of about evidence. Uh, we must cha challenge the current paradigms as well. I think just simply because we've had that system in place for 12, you know, 100 years, or maybe it's 50 years, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to hold for the next 50 or 100 years, uh, and it's unlikely to. I don't think some of these are really sustainable. Uh, economically as well. So I think we do need to keep checking, calibrating, assessing, is this the way forward, what's equitable, um, you know, and if we are to change it, how do we ensure that, you know, that those who are less, you know, uh, uh, there's equitable access for those who really, you know, struggle to be able to cover any cost. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot that's happening in the transport system and is going to happen in the transport system. And that's just one, I'm just giving you one illustration of that. Uh, you can imagine if you're looking at housing or you're looking at the economic system, uh, you know, the one I don't know any great deal about, but our governance systems, 
the governance systems are not operating globally for our 21st mm -hmm. century. They're, they're just struggling. Um, they're, you know, particularly in this part of the world, they emanated out of you know, you know, 1700s, 1800s, you know, you know, structures. Um, why would you expect that their necessary is going to be ideal for operating in a 21st century? Yeah. So, you know, I guess what I'm wanting to uh, not be provocative with, but is to challenge, to make sure that you know, the generation coming are uh, you know, on top of all of these, you know. Yeah. Um, so with all of that information and all the possible change in the future, what do you think would be like the ultimate city design? Like what would be the thing that would capture and increase health gains and, and have the best transport system? What would be like your, your best city for that? Wow. Um, I mean, I could be idealistic and say, well, it's one that's not doesn't have cars in it. Yeah. Um, but that's you know just idealism. That's not all, you know in, you know in this part of the world, you know that's not realistic. Um, but it would be one which has much much greater levels of density than we have. Um, you know, I, I you know as much as I love Perth, I come here and I just think this is not sustainable. Um, and, and you've got to also embrace what are we dealing with in the future, well not future, in the next 10 years, we're going to have climate extremes. Yeah. You know, you've got 40, well, I don't know if it's 40 degrees today, but it was 42 yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, talking to a professor you know, in relation to climate extremes only a few weeks ago at a National Health and Medical Research Council meeting that we had on climate change and health, um, he was indicating to me that you know a city like Melbourne will be exposed to temperatures of about 55 degrees. Now, you know those are really incredible extremes that we're going to have to deal with, and the health consequences of those are huge. And we, we're not grappling with those at the moment at all. Um, and so I think what we're going to need is we must have greater densities uh, just to be able to deal with that because you can't you can't adapt to 55 degrees. No. <laughs> Um, so we've got to have greater densities uh, so that we can actually green and have sustainable cities. And those sustainable cities are not car-focused or centric cities. So we've got to move out away from that as fast as we can. Um, and that means greater investment in public transit. There will be autonomous vehicles and how we use those, we need governance structures to work that out. You know, they could be ideal public transit mm. for the future, but they've got to have some structures and, and, and governance around it and policies and regulation, and, and we're not doing enough in that area at all. So, you know, I'm painting... You know, I, I guess on one hand I'm painting a really exciting picture of a denser city, one that's not car-dependent, uh, that's green, um, and it's vibrant. Mm. You know, it's vibrant. I can remember doing my PhD here and having to go out and interview people in the suburbs, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, and I must admit, I felt depressed. I felt there was no life there in the middle of yep. the day, and I thought, what, what's the next generation going to be like growing up in these areas where they really didn't have the stimulation? And, and in part because our workforce had to change, you know, parents were working, everything had changed. So we've got to think through that. There's a, there's a whole myriad of, of challenges that are going to be a symptom of how our city's been designed. Mm. So there is some policy movement in WA recently that the current Labor government have, um, they're implementing MetroNet which is their public transport uh, kind of blueprint uh, that is expanding the train line out to the Swan Valley because there's a huge population living out there now uh, and then having a line to the airport 
that comes off one of the main lines. Um, so, that, that, um, but these things have been political footballs for a long time, and they're ten years later than promised, and this sort of thing. Um, is that the sort of stuff you're talking about? And are there other things that maybe they need to be prioritising as well, um, in your view? Uh, look, uh, they, they are really good strategies. I mean, the challenge we have, though, is how do we fund those and how do we get them to be delivered much sooner? Uh, then, you know, we're seeing that in, in, um, in Melbourne, that infrastructure in Australia, per se, is, is a political piece. And, it, and, it, and it's calm. You're delivering to the people of the country. It's not a political piece. Um, and it shouldn't be. So, so we need to get that element sorted first and then we've got to work out how do we expedite the delivery of it because we need it now and we need it sooner than, if you're saying 10 years, you can guarantee it'll be probably 20 years out to Allenbrook. You know, it'll be something like that and that's ridiculous um, because in the meantime you've got to deliver services and everything else. So, um, but, you know, some, the reality then though is that we're still dealing with a public transport system that's a very rigid transport system. Um, and so you've got to work around how do you get people to that system. And that's where autonomous vehicles probably come in, but that's where rideshare comes in. Uh, and so there's a whole, uh, you know, norm, enormous opportunities that arise from that for the last mile and the first mile of any journey. So that's, that's useful to know. So what that does mean is that when you do build these these rail links. You don't need to create, you know, massive car parks like you have in in, in Perth, um, which actually, I mean, the, the the heat that comes from those is just phenomenal. So they just exacerbate the ex climate extremes we're going to be dealing with. So there's a whole bunch of things we can say. Well, we're not we're not going to provide those. They're going to be there's going to be you know shared public transport that will give you the last mile or the first mile. But it's still not delivering in terms of physical activity either. So you do need, again, elements around, well, how do we achieve that? How do we build into our systems a level of, of activity? Because, you know, running an intervention around getting people to be physically active is not working. So it's got to be designed. In. And that's why I think we've got to look at our, at our urban designers and our planners and work with them to say, no, we've got to design this in now and how we do it. Um, and so the green space, the blue space are all really important. So I think I'm, I'm sort of getting to answering your question, but I think, you know, all of that is needed. Mm. Yeah, so I, my view, having grown up in Perth and then lived overseas in places like Barcelona for a few years and, and other cities that, that are, I would say are more active um, generally, um, is our mindset here, we, we get raised, uh, regarding ownership is a really important thing, you know, owning properties, owning cars, owning all this sort of stuff, rather than the communal kind of ownership amongst the community. And I think what you're getting at is we don't all need to own a car. If there's a car that can turn up and pick us up when we need it, and the rest of the time when it would normally be sitting in the garage, you know, it's going somewhere else and picking someone else up and mm -hmm. taking them on a short journey. Mm -hmm. I feel like we just need to start sowing the seeds of that idea of, you know, it's for the greater good and transport resources are communal and they, they're there to get us all where we're going from A to B. Um, and the same with housing and, and that sort of stuff, you know, with high density housing, it's, it's a bit of a foreign concept in, in Perth. Um, but I feel like as time goes on and those generations that have been raised that way and get older and, you know, pass on, hopefully, you know, some of the younger generations, if we start sowing those seeds now, they get used to that as, as the norm rather than the exception. Um, and you can see it happening in places like Sydney and, and Melbourne already. But yeah, I think Perth is, you know, 20 years behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it, Yes, it, yes and no. I mean, I think what's exciting about Perth is that with leadership it can change things pretty quickly and it could be quite, you know, really innovative. 
Um, but it requires leadership, you know, and, and that's a challenge. And again, that gets back to the governance structures. We have very short-term government, we have vested interests, and it, it, you know, it just, it's a difficult, it's a difficult piece to say, you've got a leader who's, who's really, you know, got a focus and a vision and is going to deliver that. Because it requires, you know, like you're saying, quite a considerable mindset change. Um, and uh, there are opportunities to start delivering some of that now. And I, and I think once people begin to explore that and their access is improved, then their reliance on a private motor vehicle can, you know, be, it, it can change. Mm -hmm. But until you can do that, you know, you're isolated without it in this city. Yeah, to give you an example, I lived in Barcelona for three years, three and a half years actually, and I never owned a motor vehicle the whole time. Mm. And I went and saw plenty of the country and mm. whatnot. It was quite easy to get on a train mm. or... Get a, get a coach up to the ski slopes or any of that sort of stuff and it was just normal you know everyone else was in the same boat yeah i think i'm very lucky because i i also don't own a car and i so i live in perth and i don't own a car um and i'd be one of the few that don't um but i live in the city of vincent and city of vincent have some really good plans in terms of cycling and urban development and all that kind of stuff but that's incredibly rare here um so yeah, I think there definitely should be more of a focus on cycling, pedestrian um, access and green spaces as well. Um, I think it would definitely improve mm. a lot of things in Perth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I, I do cycle to work from Morley, which is a, mm. you know, probably a 45 minute cycle. And Oof. I'd say probably half of that cycle is either in a cycle lane or on a cycle path yeah. around the river. And the other half is sort of battling the traffic and, you know, people that want to sort of run you off the road because mm. they mm. want to get past and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And, yeah, I think the, the big corridors really do need to be designed, you know, and there's space to do it. There's just choosing to have mm. cars parked on one side yeah, of the road right now. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, you, you, I mean, again, that gets back to the governance structure. You know, you, you have multiple local councils and it means you've got to get each of them to agree on the same process. And if you want to create a cycling highway, for example, which would be really valuable. I mean, you've got some amazing cycling infrastructure in the city, but it's... But it, it, you know, but if you're wanting people to take it up more, you do need to get it from the Morleys and everywhere else. It's not around the river, which is quite nice. So if you live in South Perth, it's fantastic. But you know, if you live in the Morley, you, you've got a you've got a really a major challenge. And we know, you know, your risk of injury is very very high um, traveling through that network. Yeah. You know, um, and having a bit of paint on the on the road, unless it's totally segregated from traffic, you're at major risk. Yeah. And drivers do seem to feel like it's just, it could be a temporary parking lane, the cycle lane, unless it's physically <laughs> barricaded, you know? And again, I think well, it's been designed issue. for them, you know? Yeah. The road's been designed for them, not, the road hasn't been designed for a cyclist or a pedestrian to use, to the extent it ought to be now. Um, and so it's until we start redesigning it, and one of our studies was to look at how do we retrofit current infrastructure so that actually there is a segregated section for cyclists. Mm. Um, you know, I, we only have one car in Melbourne, um, and I use public transport. I, I probably would cycle in Melbourne if if the infrastructure would allow me to be 100% segregated. I've done too much research in cycling to, um, to not, you know, to cycle without that, and um, and and that's the important piece. You know? Yeah, uh, that was one thing that I really did notice when I was in Copenhagen a couple of years ago was that they do, They have a, it's almost like two separate roads and two separate sets of traffic lights, one for the cyclists mm -hmm. and one for the drivers mm -hmm. and then the pedestrians as well, mm -hmm. you know, separate mm -hmm. again. So, yeah. yeah. No, in our study uh, where we looked at with Copenhagen, we were looking at, okay, what, 
does Copenhagen need to do to ensure it can move more people into cycling and in relation to their infrastructure? And it, we actually showed they don't need to do anything. They have actually designed their infrastructure for cycling and walking. Uh, whereas somewhere like Melbourne, um, it, it required um, for vehicles kilometre travel as a cyclist on segregated infrastructure, something like 45% of our infrastructure needed to be changed. So, you know, and that's a huge cost. Mm. So, you know, there's big challenges. So from a, from a health economics kind of viewpoint, is there scope to do work that looks at the opportunity cost of not doing that in terms of poor health outcomes and increased kind of hospitalisation and that sort of thing? And how those could be reduced if some of those dollars were diverted into those preventive strategies, mm. essentially? Mm. Uh, look, they're, they're good points, and, and that's what um, we're looking to do now is, is to put a cost on the health elements so that um, instead of when we look at transport, we predominantly just look at congestion and time as sort of the costs, so that we actually put health as the first priority. Um, and and just measure the health cost associated with that. And because we're using as an outcome in many of our studies now is a disability-adjusted life year, um, that allows us to be able to put some costs on it. We haven't, I haven't done it. We haven't done it yet. I mean, there's many things we have to do. <laughs> and, uh, and very little time. But, yeah. and so those would be some of the cardiovascular type outcomes that you're talking about, yeah. preventing that disease. Oh, the biggest, in, in relation to transport, the biggest changes and transport system uh, probably born out in cardiovascular disease. And that's also through, I mean, uh, you know, I, I've done a lot on road trauma uh, in my research career, uh, and there's 1.3 million deaths a year globally from road trauma. But just uh, as a consequence of, of um, the uh, emissions from motor vehicles, that contributes to about 4.3 million deaths a year. So, you know, there's a lot of talk around road trauma, and, and, and importantly so, but actually the, the emissions from the vehicles contribute considerably more. Mm -hmm. um, and that feeds into then the cardiovascular disease, which we're not sort of saying, but there's a, you know, I think in our study, I'm trying to remember now, I think uh, when we looked at London and Melbourne, I think 13% of the health burden associated with transport use was uh, carried by cardiovascular disease. Um, that's transport related. So, you know, that was for um, Melbourne and about 16% for London or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's quite substantial. So if you focus on transport policies, you'll get some considerable gain in cardiovascular disease, yeah. And it seems quite important to include that in the research because I think this is a, a more recent thing that's happening is the, the cost associated with that burden is so important to understand and I feel like that's only recently been put into research. Um, to really put the, the dollar amount. Um, and just for the audience, um, disability adjusted life year is a, a measure of burden within the community um, and it's, a, it's a, one of the standard measures that we use. Yeah, so it's, it's how, how disability affects your quality of life essentially. Yeah. 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 Um, so before we wrap up, is there, are there any other things you've got coming up or that you're working on now that you wanted to, to raise or um, bear in mind you'll probably have some really heavy hitters listening to this podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, what, so what can I leave you with? I think there's a few pearls in there. Um, <laughs> uh, look, I, I guess 
you know, we talk a lot about interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work. Uh, I really advocate that, and I and and I don't advocate it in relation to sort of tokenism. I advocate it in relation to embracing approaches and research approaches, particularly of other disciplines, uh, to begin to explore. You know, how we might understand some of our complexity in our cities, um, and so I think that's a really important point. Uh, I. I really, um, I, I have some challenges in Australia in that I think there is so much we can do in this country. It's an incri incredibly exciting country and our cities are, you know, on the whole very vibrant. Um, but there's a lot more we need to be doing and we need to get to terms and come to terms with how we operate uh, our governance systems in these, in these cities. Um, because we're going to take a long time to deliver what we now know um, if we constantly have to deal with many layers of bureaucracy. Mm. So there are some of those challenges that, you know, I, I can't, I, you know, I, I'm just putting them out there. I, I have no idea how we might even begin to look at that. But there is urgency around how we deliver infrastructure that's going to deliver uh, healthy outcomes for our populations. Yeah. Um, and what, uh, I, I guess the final point is, is, and it really feeds back into that point again, is the level of urgency for this. I mean, you know, we, the, the level of, you know, what the climate extremes that this country is going to be exposed to are going to be phenomenal. Um, and we are doing very, very little to mm -hmm. even begin to explore that yeah. um, and, and respond to it. Uh, and our city form is really key to it. We're the most highly urbanised city in the world, like a country in the world, um, and that is only increasing. So we're going to be sitting, you know, Melbourne's predicted to be 8 million, as is Sydney. Um, I'm not sure about Perth, probably about 2.3 million by 2050, something like that, yeah. um, or more. And these are big cities uh, on the global scale. And if we cannot ensure that we can provide good water, you know, the basics of public health, uh, energy systems are operating efficiently and not totally dependent on coal, um, that we can run transport systems that are equitable uh, and are not car dependent. Um, and if we can put uh, health outcome measures across a lot of our, our transport, a lot of not only our transport policies, but across a lot of other policies, um, we are going to be able to develop and produce and potentially in my generation leave cities that are much more sustainable, vibrant, um, you know, cities that you know we wish to live in, not yeah. socially isolated, urban sprawls that require that lead to massive inequities, which is what's happening in Perth um, because there's limited access. If you live in certain areas, it's happening in every city in this country. So you know, so now I'm actually leaving, <laughs> leaving this presentation or podcast on a on a negative, but I think <laughs> it, it probably does need to be left on a negative. It mm. needs because there is a major. There's a level of urgency about what we need to do, um, not only for health, but for the sustainability of our cities, yeah. and, and we're not doing it. That's something that's, that I'm glad you mentioned the urban sprawl, because yeah. you know since the 80s, I remember being a child in Perth, when my parents immigrated here from, from the UK, and the, the freeway stopped it in the loo and went just over to South Perth, pretty much. It was literally just the bridge with a little bit on each side. Yeah. And now we've got this freeway that probably takes about an hour and a half to drive from the top to the bottom, you know, down to Manger, all the way up to Butler or, you know, wherever it stops these days. Um, and yeah, I think that 
just illustrates your point perfectly, you know, and, and that is a car-centric, I know there's a train down the middle of it now, but that train goes down one straight line, and it, how are people getting the 30 to 40 minutes each side of that, that train line, you know, all the way up and down. Yeah, interesting. Right, I've got one last question for you. Um, what's your future? What are you doing next? Um, <laughs> what am I doing next? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to survive in the academic world. Very good. <laughs> that means finding grants, finding money, yeah. um, and um, and supporting you know a, a very small group that are really talented. So it's uh, you know I, I mean they're supporting themselves really well, but uh, you know trying to keep something that we've created <laughs> alive. So you know it's it's not an easy gig in 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 100% research world now. Um, so so that's always on the agenda, but. Um, uh, and I guess the other, probably the other point of what I'm going to be looking at into the future is to, uh, you know, we have a privileged position being in, in sort of senior academic roles and that means that we have the opportunity to be able to challenge as well and to not only provide the evidence but to question and challenge and, and, and so I think, you know, that's some of what I will focus on too. And just quickly for people who are from UWA, um, we recently had Lynn Mulliners come and join our school, her group. How are you tied in with, with her group? So, uh, it goes back a fair way now. Uh, I employed Lynn, I, I headed a, like the equivalent of what was called Road Accident Prevention Research Unit and then it became the Injury Research Centre many years ago. Um, and I employed Lynn when she had finished her PhD to work as a research officer in that, or research fellow. Um, and uh, I, but I didn't stay for long. I moved to Sydney, so <laughs> uh, I didn't work with her a long time. But I've, I've had uh, I, in other roles I've had. I used to head uh, a research Monash University was excellent research centre, and they had a partnership with the group that she headed here. Uh, and so I, I've had you know collaborative collaborations with them for many years now. You know, probably 25, mm -hmm. 20, 20 years probably. Um, and so it's just great to be back here, you know, collaborating on some new research ideas as well. So excellent. That's good. That seems like a slightly more positive note to end on. I think so. <laughs> good. Yeah, so thanks very much for your time yes, today. Thank Mark. you. Yeah, fascinating mm. chat to you and all the best for the future. It's really important work. And right. good luck with your grant writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we will do that. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And that was our conversation with Professor Mark Stevenson. As usual, there are links in the show notes if you would like to read more about the work that Professor Stevenson is doing. And if you would like to get in touch with us, at health means what via Twitter or meaningofhealth at outlook.com. We love getting your messages and feedback, so please keep it coming. And we will look forward to bringing you the next episode. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Music